Well, this is episode eight of our Conversations for Change. And thank you everybody for your uh, feedback and encouragement. Um, it's great to see these conversations having an impact as we press into um, injustice and uh, race, where that intersects with the gospel and the church. And I am really excited to introduce a couple of uh, friends, some of the friends that we've had almost since day one, actually of us arriving uh, in New York City. If you know anything about the story of Liberty Church, Andy and I moved with three little kids, uh, four, two, and one years of age, and we moved to New York knowing li literally only two people in the city, and, and then God did his thing, and in quick order brought some pretty amazing people into our lives that became fast friends, like this couple that I'm gonna put on the screen right now, April and Lincoln Critchlow. So good to have you guys on the conversation. Um, these two are very special people. I think, I mean, it was literally, I think the first or the second gathering that we ever did in Central Park, I think, um, that we hung out for the first time. And um, you guys have been there since the very beginning before Liberty Church was anything other than vision and ideas. <laughs> and you've been a big part of that coming to pass. And then over the years, uh, served as uh, elders, helped us pioneer visionaries, really, our professional development community these days, um, part of our downtown Manhattan community through all of that time, friends, board members, on and on it goes. You've been massive uh, contributors to the vision and the DNA of Liberty Church. So I'm just excited that you guys are joining for the conversation today. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having us. And yeah. we feel the same about you and Andy and um, our journey in New York wouldn't be the same without you guys. So Absolutely. right back at you. And you've got two ridiculously cute children um, that we adore and that my kids adore. So, and I happen to know uh, because we took a minute to check everything before we hit record um, that like every good parent who's learning to work from home or work remotely right now, um, the kids have been bribed with ice cream or something in the other room and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> only way. Briars <laughs> works every time. Yeah. Works every time. Been there, done that. Absolutely. So um, I'm just really thrilled and I'm, I'm excited to see where the conversation goes today. Um, maybe we could start by doing this and um, kind of give you guys the floor is um, maybe each of you could just tell me a little bit or, you know, for everybody watching, some will be from Liberty Church and, and some won't. They'll find the podcast or the YouTube channel or whatever and and pick up on this thread, this conversation. Maybe you can let us know a little bit about the two of you, your backgrounds and kind of what brought us to this point. Yeah, well, where to, where to begin? Uh, we are both from Vancouver, Canada and came to New York about 10 years ago um, to, to come here for work. And, um, you know, our, and you shared our journey of how we became part of Liberty Church. Uh, we're both in the business world. Um, I work um, in high tech and I'm a marketing leader for one of the world's largest software companies, SAP. And um, in my role, in addition to marketing, also lead all of our diversity and inclusion initiatives for our business. So, you know, this is such a topical and important conversation um, as I think about the intersection of church and faith and you know, my purpose and my professional and sort of personal capital with what I do um, in my work. So 
uh, mom of two, like you mentioned, and live in downtown Manhattan, you know, where we've built such an incredible community. So um, that's me. I'll pass it to Link. Yeah, so I am much older than her, as you can tell. But <laughs> I was actually born in the Caribbean, lived there for all of seven months, and I moved to Toronto, spent a number of years in Canada, and moved back and forth as my dad was doing his uh, postgraduate work. Ended up in Vancouver and then back in Trinidad, back and forth. But I think I, I told April I was probably went to 12 different schools for graduating high school, which was a really interesting experience for me across three different countries primarily. Uh, from there, I moved back to Canada and then went to university out there and uh, started my career in entrepreneurship in the mid 90s. And um, when April and I got married shortly thereafter, we were given the opportunity to moved to New York City, which I was incredibly excited about not, but uh, God convinced us it was the right thing to do. And um, the two things I prayed for before I came were just a great church to plug into and a community of businessmen that I can run with. And God answered both really on the same day. So here we are 10 years later and um, just enjoying the journey. So it's great. Well, we are certainly glad because you guys are amazing people. Uh, you love Jesus, <clears throat> you know, you're leading in your industries and making a difference. And we'll probably get to explore that a little bit more to, you know, talk about some of the things that you're doing you know, professionally um, that's impacting these conversations that are so necessary to, um, there's so many ways that we could go. And I guess these, these conversations are pretty open, honestly, but one of the things that struck me as I knew we were getting ready to have this conversation, you know, um, walking with you guys as friends as well is I just wanted maybe if you could speak a little bit from a parent's perspective um you know um raising kids um at this moment in our history talk to me about some of your experiences or some of your concerns some of your prayers um uh what's it what's it like um raising kids i don't know if it's just just generally kids that are people of color in this moment in history or i know some some of the conversations that i've had too um you know parents have particular prayers or pain um for sons in these moments as well and i just wonder if you know whatever whatever you're comfortable to share talk to me about how you're processing this moment even as people that you know maybe you weren't born in the United States and neither was I, but you've experienced things along the, the way. And no doubt, as I have seen that, you know, racism is also a, a global thing. And yet we stepped into a particular moment and a particular context um, in New York, in the United States in 2020 and all these things intersecting, you know, how are you processing all of this? Such a good question. Um, you know, originally when we moved here from Canada, we were told, oh, guys are nuts you're going to the states it's incredibly racist there and the, the history of the united states and are you guys sure you want to leave canada but funny enough i mean some of the, my first experience of racism began at the age of seven uh, i remember riding a bicycle to school with my sister and we, there was this one particular house we always ride by and at that house we just knew it was going to happen it's a young kid who liked to call us the n-word and try and spit at us every time and it was really the first experience I remember having as a child. And then as I got older, 
there was some of the, the more subtle things on some of the assumptions that were made about me as a black person um, when it came to certain stereotypes. And then there were just overt things like being in university and having someone walk up to you, call you the N-word and punch you in the back of your head at a bus stop and getting attacked by four guys with a knife and having to fend yourself off in rush hour and no one steps in. So it's a whole gamut of experiences that I personally walked through as a Canadian person. And I remember like three years ago, I think you guys had a, a forum at um, Liberty just talking about race. And I thought, eh, I'm going to stay out of it because you know, the systemic history of racism in the U.S. And I don't want to step into that because I haven't lived it. But I think if I were to be honest, there were so many experiences I had growing up um, that do make me very conscious. And I wish I did participate in that event in retrospect. But now when we're raising our kids, I do feel like I'm much more conscious of who they are and expressing the beauty of their being to them letting them know that their skin color is beautiful and it's cherished and it's envied and that everything about them is just so unique and so precious. And it's interesting because our kids are at an age now where they'll come home and they'll, they'll share experiences from school. I think April can touch, touch on a couple of those, but you know, my son's now noticing that no one else looks like him in class. I think there are two black kids in his school we live uh, in Battery Park City, the tip of Tribeca, and literally it's, I think, one other kid in him. And you start to see the impact it has on him, and as he looks around and some of the comments he hears, I think my role as a dad is really to make sure that his love tank is full, mm. that he knows who he is, and that his identity is just centered in Christ, and that mm. he is bold and smart, and that he is you know, a young man of honor. And that's really what I try my best to do uh, with, with Hudson right now. And Ava has her own observations. We're watching TV the other day and she goes, dad, how come there's no one of color on TV? <laughs> Everyone on TV is white uh, and you know, she's four. And you realize that they're starting to see the world through a particular lens. I think another one of them shared experience where they're like, so many homeless people I see dad are, are black. Does that mean that I'm unlucky because I'm black to have this skin? And just comments like that that you hear and you realize that, you know, we consciously have to constantly have to build their image and remind them of their beauty and their strength. I think, I think one of the things that's probably um, more subtle to us is understanding that we ourselves as parents have done our best to try and break stereotypes before they happen. So we were with some dear friends on the weekend and we were talking about how, you know, simple things like a drop off. We want to make sure that we're presentable when we drop off to disarm any kind of stereotypes. Or our kids are always dressed impeccably because we want to disarm or break any stereotypes before they happen, before they even talk to our kids. And those are like weights that we carry that other parents probably don't carry, but you know, part of it is, is conscious in our part and part of it's the way we grew up. And we're always making sure our kids are presenting well, you know, doing all these things well. And I think just going through this period we've gone through recently, it's been somewhat of a relief to hear other parents say that the burden's heavy. And I think we're all now just starting to let it go and just walk in the freedom of who Christ created us to be and not worry so much about those exterior things and deal with the judgment as it happens or deal with things as, as they come up. 
Um, it's really been my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I agree with all those things. And I think for me, it's been an interesting sort of reflection on myself, you know, around where I've tried to maybe consciously or subconsciously avoid certain conversations or certain confrontations, even with my kids. You know, I remember Hudson coming home from school and saying that someone at school made fun of his like gums because they're not pink, you know, they're, they're darker. And I tried to kind of brush it off, you know, or Ava crying because she's like, why don't I have straight hair like Barbie? You know, and I think some of these things as parents, you, you, you don't have sort of a, a manual on how to, you know, deal with these things. But certainly in these last number of months, it's woken me up to the fact that they actually are things that we have to confront and proactively confront them because there's lots of studies that I've been reading lately that show that when kids are born, all kids don't notice color. But as they start to get into social settings, as they start to look at the settings they are in in school or who their care caretakers are, they start to notice this difference between who is heightened in society and who isn't. And then that, that starts to reflect on, on them as, as kids of color. So it's important to have conversations with kids at a young age. I always thought, well, you know, we'll have that conversation with them about racism and about the differences of being a person of color, you know, when they're older, you know, but I think what I'm starting to realize is it's important for us to be able, and much like Lincoln said, to be able to imprint on them the identity of who they are in Christ, like right from a young age, even the awkward and uncomfortable ones. We've always spoken over their identity, but maybe not specifically on the topic of race. And um, I'm still learning, you know, how to do that. It's not always easy for me. And, um, but I think trying to learn from people who are, you know, really educated on it and how to have those tough conversations with, with kids that's age appropriate. Cause you know, we have a seven year old now and a four year old, they don't understand everything, but enough that they're starting to notice those differences. So um, for, for me, it's really confronting my own, you know, um, let's say insecurity or fear, and then making sure that that's something that isn't passed, you know, to the kids as they think about, you know, the difference of who they are and instead embracing, you know, that difference, especially, you know, where, where they go to school and in their community because they are the minority. And, and you know, I think that can translate into other areas like work and, and other areas as well as they grow up. So. I think one of the things I pray for them every night is just that they would always be the head, not the tail, above, not beneath, leaders, not followers, and lenders, not borrowers. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. cute because as I pray for them, I, I believe that about them. And I think about the mistakes I made in my life. A lot of mistakes and a lot of bad decisions I made were always trying to either seek acceptance or fill a gap in my life. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that my goal for them is to make sure that their love tank's full and mm -hmm. let them know that they're accepted. And they are powerful when they walk out that door. You know, as you talk about that too, it sort of strikes me, you know, obviously there's the, this primary role of the parent, but I think about the value of community too, and this is just kind of a new thought I'm having as you're talking, but it makes me wonder two ways in which we as a church could um, be helping facilitate conversations and creating that sense of value and pressing into the beauty of diversity, you know, in the body of Christ, even Liberty kids. And, you know, because we have a multi-ethnic 
church, but it makes me wonder too, and I'm thinking out loud, you know, in what ways could we stand with you more as parents as well and resource and support? I, our youngest, Sam, is seven and his, uh, his public school uh, second grade teacher started these, uh, these uh, sort of circles, uh, restorative circles over Zoom but talking about these very things in the midst of everything with Ahmad Aubrey and George Floyd and, and talking about race and racism, talking about um, justice. And you know, I think there's, I don't really have a question. It's more, I guess I'm thinking out loud as I talk with you guys, but I think there's great opportunity. You know, it's, what strikes me as you're talking is for the next generation, what are we as the church, as a church going to do um, for the next generation to experience um, the world differently than our generation has and see the gospel in its context, you know, in, in all of this. Yeah, totally agree. I think um, there's always more for us to learn, especially in this time where there's a heightened awakening and almost like feels like we're on the brink of sort of a revival around some of these things. And, um, you know, in my work world, you know, we, we've often talked about, you know, I think the first step is making sure that we're, we're listening to people and allowing people to mm. grieve, um, especially right after the death of, of George Floyd. And that came after Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. There was a very uh, tangible, and I think we all felt it, a very tangible sense of grief. And so I think allowing people to, to voice that and giving them an open door to be able to do that, we, we actually held a town hall, you know, at SAP, which is something we've never done before. Um, allowing um, a number of uh, people of color to share their personal experiences and then arming people sort of with action and resources. Because I think when you're left with something like that, you also kind of want to know, what do I do, you know, with all of this, right? People want that moment to grieve, to be heard and understood, you know, um, and in marketing, we often talk about listen, understand, and then act. You know, this is the loop of understanding your customer. I think it's the same thing as we think about our community. Let's listen to people, let's really understand them, and then give them the resources to act. And like I said, even for me, being a minority and being in the diversity world, I had no idea that there were so many more resources um, to, to enable you to understand, you know, the depth of what we're dealing with with systemic racism and how we really educate, especially our children, who are the next generation. I hope that by the time they become our age, that they're going to be so much more comfortable and so much more open and so much more equipped to have these kinds of conversations than, than I think we certainly have been, you know, so. <laughs> So yeah, I think there's a, there's a process and opportunity there that we can go through. So with, with the work that you're doing, April, because I mean, in addition to your global marketing role, you mentioned in the, in the introduction there that you've got a, a responsibility over diversity and inclusion, right? Could you speak a little bit to what that is? Because I guess I'm always hoping as we wrestle with um, the gospel and the role of the local church, I think there's so much we can learn from other spheres. And um, yeah, I guess I want to kind of listen with that filter of like, what are you learning? What are you seeing? What's, 
working um, and, and I don't know, I, I, I wonder about that in the context of the local church and these conversations for change too, like what would be, what would be relevant to the body of Christ right now that, that frankly, like organizations are leading in. Yeah. Can you share the experience you had when you guys went to the meeting and you guys had that forum where people talked about where their stereotypes began and you guys were well ahead of the curve there. It was amazing. Yeah. That was pivotal to me. Yeah. People were crying. Yeah. So at SAP, we're 100,000 people, um, but certainly uh, not as diverse as we could be. You know, I think the overall percentage of African-American employees is like 2 to 3% in a 100,000-person company. So the perspective... Uh, from a leadership level and overall team and collective community level is one that leads towards being white and also a white male, you know, in, in technology. So a lot of the discussion that has been heightened in this time has been about how do we actually listen and um, bring in a diversity of thought when it comes to how we have these conversations. Because there's proven, often people say, well, diversity doesn't really mean anything in terms of the bottom line or making change. But it's been proven that diverse teams actually drive innovation and a higher um, revenue at the end of the day, right? So I think about, um, you know, and I think what you were alluding to was there was a forum that we had where we brought in a diversity and inclusion um, group, and they allowed um, uh, sort of, and it's too long to get into, but they allowed sort of this sort of circle of people in a group of about 12 to share their experiences as people of color. And the, the meeting ended in people in tears, people hugging, people saying, I had no idea that that was your experience. This was last year. So certainly before, you know, this collective conversation we're having. And I think it's in those forums where if someone can share with you their personal experience, no one can really take that away from you. You know what I mean? Like, regardless of what you think about all the different topics that are out there today, if you listen and sit to someone's personal experience, I think it really is something that gets to the heart of um of the hearts of people if at the end of the day i think that's what we're trying to do right is get to the hearts of people and so in sap we've, we've allowed for more things like town halls more conversations a little bit more emotional like you know in the business world we tend to be a little bit more buttoned up and that storytelling of much like lincoln shared earlier the storytelling of how he grew up we're starting to hear these stories now at SAP and it's opening our eyes to, wow, how do we start to um, support, you know, employees of color in SAP? And then also thinking about raising employees of color in key positions, whether that's in board positions, leadership positions, because that's where you start to bring in that voice. Um, it's very hard, I think, for a, a homogenous group of people to have a diverse point of view, right? And so I think it's important that we listen, but we also think about where are we reflecting the continual discussion and innovation um, around these topics by actually structurally changing, almost dismantling a little bit of how we hire, how we retain, how we attract talent. Um, it's not going to happen until we have 
diverse um, sets of leaders and teams um, and purposely do something around that. It's not easy because then you get into the discussions around, well, nobody of color applies for jobs <coughs> or we don't, um, nobody, you know, decides to take the next step in the interview. But then the discussion also becomes, well, maybe when they look around at who <laughs> they'd be working with, they wouldn't feel like, you know, they could be included in that. So I think the lesson there for the church as well is, you know, as we think about the diversity of not only our, you know, members in our congregation, but also in the, the teams that make up our, our church or the voices that contribute. They don't, maybe we don't have as diverse of a leadership team today or, and then certainly at Liberty, I know we're very diverse, but for many churches, maybe they don't, but maybe it's inviting other voices you know, to those conversations. To, it's, it's so important to have diversity of thought because all of us come to the table with a different experience. And until you actually ask someone, what's your experience? Tell me your story. You, you might never hear it. You know, I think a lot of people that have known Lincoln for a long time didn't know that he grew up with racism. You know, I think they just thought, oh, he's Lincoln, you know. Um, so I think it's important that we, we do that. And I think there's, there's many lessons we can learn from business and from the corporate world that we can translate into our church, you know, sort of uh, uh, plans and strategies. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, in, in many ways, you know, I, I had this moment with Andy maybe six months ago, I don't even remember what the particular challenge was. We were feeling discouraged. She was feeling discouraged about something in that moment. And just sort of spontaneously, I just said to her, well, we're not where we want to be, but thank God we're not where we were. You know, that was kind of just came out of me. And that phrase has really stuck with us because it sort of, it is that now and not yet tension. And I think that probably describes well a lot of things that we're feeling at the moment where, you know, and, and I think the not yet piece is also important because I think some who are eager to move on from these conversations right now or don't enjoy, I mean, not that anybody enjoys the discomfort, but you know, who already like, can't we be done? Want to point to maybe historical changes, but it's like, there's so, there's, there's so much more, right? And I think like that leaning into the so much more is really important. And I think that's true for our own church. You know, I thank God for the journey that we've done and it's been, um, at times costly and it's been difficult and I, know for, I can only speak really for myself in the learning curve and I guess you know making mistakes and owning them and being on that journey but I think I just feel like there's so much more that yeah well it's funny because we were in the park two weeks ago and yeah. it was Hudson's birthday and we're just hanging out there and there was a particular kid that he likes to do water fights with and uh, that day both of that kid's parents joined us and he has a very prominent position in a very large bank and he runs an entire organization within, within the bank. And we got onto the whole topic of really just postgraduate degrees and it went on from there and it got into the topic of specific schools. And, you know, he made the point like he said, you know, we only hire from 20 schools. That's it. We don't go, we don't look beyond 20 schools. And I can just imagine what the 20 schools are because it's a well-known organization. So it's probably, of course, Ivy and a few other groups that are, you know, two other schools outside of Ivy. But then he said, well, with Black Lives Matter, though, now we have to look at 50 schools. And it wasn't like he said it in a way that, oh, this is great. We're going to have diversity. 
and, and as we continued speaking, he went on to elaborate and say something that just really kind of haunted me. And he said, you know, you're not going to lose your job for hiring three kids out of Harvard. But if you hire 10 kids out of Howard, which is a predominantly black, black university, how do you know how they're going to perform? Wow. And it was within that comment that I realized that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That was in his heart, which meant that it was probably an ongoing conversation that was already happening in the organization and behind closed doors. These are the things they're saying to one another. And he felt comfortable saying that to me. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like that's systemic. That to me is like you have 20 schools. And I'm sure if you look historically at the demograph and the breakdown of those particular schools, it's understandable why the majority of the staff there would be white because not many black kids may be graduating from those schools far less when you go down the funnel to the ones who do graduate to then applying to that particular organization. And it's, it was things like that that make me realize, yes, we do have a very long way to go. And I was thrilled probably about two weeks ago to see like after all, a lot of the rioting and stuff had happened, um, CNBC had had incredible leaders. And again, I'm not condoning rioting, but somehow after all that happened, they had these incredible black leaders from organizations that were sharing their thoughts on, you know, what, how they grew up and what helped impact their life and what they saw as things that could be done from a, a reformation standpoint or the CEO of Merck talking about his experience and how, you know, they have a mentorship program that gives kids a six month opportunity to lean into a particular area. And when they're done, they, they graduate from the mentorship program, they place them into a position that's obviously not senior, but they give them that sense of corporate responsibility and belonging and, and then they nurture them from there. And it, it just warmed my heart to see all these amazing people come to the table. And I'm like, where have they been? <laughs> Why weren't they given a voice before? So, you know, I, I think in the time that we're in, to April's point, where the mic is really there and it's open, I think we have to really press in and not just be peacekeepers, as I've been all my life, but be more of a peacemaker, like have the tough conversation like I did with a lot of the dads when the rioting started who were saying things like, oh, these guys are rioting, they're just, you know, you know, giving... Fox News more to talk about and proving that. So I, I had to then say, well, you realize the rioters have nothing to do with the protesters and say, they're just opportunists. It's not the same cause that they're fighting for and start from there. And then you see the conversation start to change to the point where they're sharing the fact that they went to, you know, to, to protest themselves. So it's interesting when you step up and just choose to speak truth and share it in such a way that you're not, you know, calling someone out in a way that their backs immediately against the wall, like the Bible talks about, like, you know, a person offended is, you know, harder to, to win than a strong city. So like, how do we have conversation where that person's not immediately shut down? And I think that's the art of all this that yeah. we're learning to do, but it starts yeah. with just being honest. Yeah. And how do you not be sort of a clanging symbol as the Bible says as well? You know, I think, so much of what we see on social can be productive and but so much can be like a clanging symbol and we've really been trying to think about how do we have conversations that will get to people's hearts that might not like you said 
can we just move on or we've already dealt with this or these are some good things that have happened, but you're so right, Paul, there's so much more. And the problem is it's so deep, it's hard to just, it, it's so deep that it's even hard to explain sometimes how deep it is, you know? And so I think about, cause we have friends from all different walks of life, you know? right and left and rich and poor and like, you know, everything in between. And so we've really been trying to think about like for our friends that might have a different point of view than us, it is actually our responsibility now. This is a moment in time. This is an inflection point in history where, and hey, we're Canadian, so we're very polite and very peacekeeping, that it is time for us to um, have the tough conversation, you know, and even with the conversation we had in the park where the person mentioned about the, you know, Howard University versus Harvard, that was a moment for us. And I'm, if I'm being honest, we didn't say anything, right? Because um, we don't know this person very well and it would have been awkward. And then we kind of thought back and thought that was a moment we should have said something, you know? And we are really challenging ourselves and trying to make sure that we hold ourselves accountable as well for where we can be peacemakers, where we have the heart to, you know, in love and truth, share our experiences or our knowledge or, you know, what we would impart from a Holy Spirit or, you know, God-centered way of dealing with this. And it's not easy. It's really not easy, but it's so necessary. And little by little, every conversation that we have, I think will make a change, you know, and because there's absolutely more work to do. We have so much more work to do. And I think it starts one conversation, one heart, one raw, real moment at a time, you know, so. Yeah, I, I totally agree. What do you, I mean, what do you, if you try to define the difference between a peacekeeper and the peacemaker, I love that distinction that, that you're both making. Like what, what is a, what's a peacekeeper type mindset and what's a peacemaker mindset? And maybe what are they, what are they doing that's different, do you think? I think at the park, when we heard that conversation, we were peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. We were complicit in the sense of not saying anything. Here you have the head of DNI and a black person. <laughs> you couldn't be with two people more appropriate to have the conversation with that person and say, let's dig deeper into what do you what do you mean by that? Like, mm-hmm. are you excited about opening up to U50 universities and try to have a conversation around it without throwing a dart necessarily? But I walked away in that situation knowing that the person who said it was incredibly, it just seemed like I couldn't read them, really the first conversation I had. So I thought, eh, I don't want to make assumptions about this person. So I'm going to keep the peace. I'm going to stay quiet, walk away. And then April, I had a conversation about it. I think peacemaking to me would be to have a conversation. Oh, let's, let's unwrap that a bit. So what makes you think that? What or, yeah. Are you how do you feel about opening up to those other schools? And have you thought about how diversity can actually help you from a client perspective, knowing that other people bring other thoughts and other experiences and other feelings that could help grow your, your market or, you know, as April just alluded to. So I think when I think of peacekeeping, most of my years were just kind of centered around trying to make sure everyone's happy around me. Everyone's comfortable. Everyone's comfortable. No one feels awkward, you know. And I realized that it kind of reminds me of just being lukewarm. I think that's wow. that's the really disgusting thing about it. And it is disgusting, I'm, I'm being honest with you. You know, because being lukewarm and not having a strong opinion, no one wants to really 
no one cares about that. When you are bold in your conviction, but at the same time professional in expressing it, and making sure you're having tough conversations, hoping to cause some kind of change, that to me is peacemaking. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think that's something that we're growing into, but I think it's just what we're called to do as people of the camps, kingdom believers, we have to be peacemakers. Yeah. I don't think we can be silent in this time is kind of what we're saying. And we yeah. have to be okay with friction and ruffling a few feathers and being uncomfortable, you know, which is because they're not comfortable conversations, you know, even with some of our own friends, you know, so um, it's just not, it's a new ground almost in a way. Um, and I think we've been kind of at the 50,000 foot level on all this stuff. And I think we need to go deeper. Yeah, I do too. And I think when Link, you're talking about trying to make sure everyone feels comfortable too, you know, what's oftentimes behind that is not everyone is comfortable. Certain people are just expected to live with um, injustice, discomfort in order to not make, you know, people who have privilege or power um, uncomfortable with facing or owning that fact or the responsibilities that come with it. So a few conversations back, I was talking with um, to Maddie Luzon, who's one of our downtown Brooklyn elders, her son pastors. Uh, and he's a great guy. And he was on and he, he, he used a term I actually hadn't even heard before. He talked about code switching. Um, this whole, this whole really in many ways to, to paraphrase the way he was describing it was, you know, really editing yourself as a person of color to feel like you would fit in or, you know, you know, and, and, and JR, our Brooklyn pastor in a different conversation talked about a similar thing that in certain environments, he would kind of edit himself or act a certain way or suppress certain parts of who he was in order to fit in or be promoted or and and that's a that's a weight there's a cumulative effect of um of that and um so i think it's interesting you know that peacemakers i think that's such a powerful thing that you guys are sharing there too because it strikes me as you um as you share about it too that it's sort of counterintuitive but sometimes to make peace requires conflict right and i think of people that i respect i respect people who have a strong opinion you know, I was, uh, we, when we were out this weekend, um, there was, we were in an area and there were like people that may have a different perspective of us and they express it. And frankly, I would rather know that. If I know who a person is, then, you know, I can then make a conscious decision in how I engage or not engage with that person. So I think when there's boldness, also an expression of who you are, I think there's a certain element where I have comfort and almost a level of respect towards being bold, not necessarily offensive, but just bold in who you are. I think there's just power in that. And for so long, that's what I did growing up. I mean, part of it is the reason why I mentioned how many schools I went to is because I learned to be really good because I went to 12 different schools and having relationships this deep. And when they started to ask me who I was, I became known as like the great deflector. Right, so I always took interest in everybody else and everyone loved being around me because I listen and I listen well. And, but a lot of it is a defense mechanism to not share who I am. So you combine that with an environment of being a black man and not wanting to then disrupt someone. And so you try and fit in and do the code switching thing. It's like literally feels like a weight that I've carried for so long in my life, especially when I go to pick up the kids. You're the only black dad there, right? 
so you tend to like have to you dress a certain way you act it, it's it's all of these little things that you kind of catch yourself in where you realize you know i don't have to do that i heard a story of someone who said a, a black man who said often when he's walking down the street at night and he lives in a very nice area if he sees a white woman walking towards him he'll cross the street not to make her feel comfortable so but because he doesn't want to be offended when she does and you think about the weight and as we unwrap that simple statement like how many layers are behind that right and you think about these things and i'm like yeah i can relate to that you know so again it's such a great opportunity to share these experiences because often people make the assumption that everything's great we have changes made you know like we made some changes from an infrastructure standpoint what are you talking about right but it's the subtle things the things that are not overt that sometimes when you're trying to express those things that you feel like the angry person so when someone lifts that burden by saying talk to me and you don't just have to come to them and say you know i really want you to see what i'm seeing and it's like trying to describe the color yellow to someone who can't see how do you do that right but if someone invites you into that conversation and they're giving you an opportunity to express who you are and just being a great listener the power of that's incredible it really is and it makes you wonder too i mean i mean link you talked about you know having the hard conversations and and i mean i know firsthand that you live that you know, you and I, I mean, you're one of my best friends. And one of the reasons that that is the case is I think over the years, it hasn't been peacekeeping. Sometimes it's been peacemaking, right? That, that both of us <laughs> at different times have had to say or hear hard things, right? And I, and I like, I mean, I think that's what, that's what makes a relationship a relationship, right? I mean, that's what makes it real. It's what gives it a foundation. I mean, I just, for one thing, just want to honor you, honor both of you, but specifically you, Lincoln, in my life, for being one of those people who's been willing, you know, to have hard conversations. I really, I respect that. It's made us like brothers, right? Exactly. And you know, it's a day when many people aren't willing to have the hard conversations, even sadly within the church. It's, um, and maybe this sounds judgmental to say, but I guess as an observer of culture and even church, culture, if you could call it that, church um, behavior, you know, a lot of people are just happy, you know, to kind of sort of throw social media grenades at each other. And, you know, a lot of, um, and, and understandably, there's a necessary conflict in this moment. So I'm not talking about that. I'm, but I'm, I just think sometimes, like, it's, it's that, it's, it's talking, it's sharing, it's like getting close enough to not just, um, I don't know, judge or critique or comment or you know from from a distance but i think and again i say that with some tension there's some tension in that it's not it's not simple and i think sometimes you just have to speak up speak out when things are said in a public square sometimes the public square is the right place to respond to them I, and so i'm not disagreeing with that so i but at the same time i think for me i can i guess i can only speak from my own experience my own my greatest learning my greatest healing, my, um, my, my personal growth has come out of relationship, you know? Um, 
I see that there's value in the books, there's value in the, the collective conversation, but I think the people, you know, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And if I look back on my growth, even in the 10 years of coming to New York, and I by no means arrived, <laughs> but I, I would credit a huge amount of my transformation and my own growth um, to people in my life. So thank you for being one of those people, both of you. <laughs> both of you have been those people for us. Maybe, um, maybe this is a good, a good junction for us to maybe close with one, one more thought. Because as I say that, I'm reminded that you guys, um, you've been that person, so to speak, those people for others as well. So, you know, when maybe we can kind of land here, you know, when, when people over the years, cause you're elders, you know, um, in our church and you're highly visible and respected leaders, you know, on the board and everything. When people come to you hurting, struggling, uh, feeling whatever they're feeling in these times, whether it's from events that they're seeing in the news, whether it's uh, ex things they're experiencing in their life, or even potentially things that they're experiencing right in our church that have landed on them as whatever, uh, bias, racism, that they feel invisible, that their voice is not heard. Uh, Eddie Rodriguez from downtown in one of the recent conversations described it as feeling like he's muzzled, you know, in these <laughs> conversations, you know, I mean, Talk to me about whatever, what, what, what counsel, you know, do you, what counsel do you give and would you give others, you know, with a view to peacemaking, not peacekeeping, what, what, what counsel would you give? And that might be a good place for us to, to land the conversation. Um, yeah. And I love what you said about relationship because I think the real and honest conversation can happen when you've been, in relationship, you know, with someone in, in the community. And so certainly some conversations have gone a little deeper than others. Um, but the advice I always give is don't assume to know someone's heart just because of something that they put, because we, we can react to things on social or we can react in the moment. But if you really think about the, the history that you've had with whatever person that may be, um, you know what their heart, and, and sometimes you might not know their heart, but don't assume to know it, because only God knows their heart, right? And if you don't, maybe that's an opportunity for you to have a conversation with that person and not necessarily with me. Um, so I think that's sort of, because that's the advice I give myself when I'm in the moment and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone said that. I try to not judge someone's heart. Um, and, and then what I've really appreciated is you know, people sort of asking very honest questions, like, I don't understand this. Can you explain this to me? Or, you know, um, what's your perspective on this as someone who works in diversity and inclusion and is a person of color? So those kinds of conversations I, I really welcome um, across the board. Um, but I've just been trying to listen and I come back to you know, we really can't judge someone. And certainly there are situations where someone is wrong, you know, and someone is out of line. And I'm not talking about that, but I just mean in the everyday dealings of how we process this stuff, we all look at it very differently. And um, I think we have to go back to that. So that would be, and I know you've talked a little bit more specifically with some people on this as well. So any thoughts? 
think similarly, I think one of the things that I observe is oftentimes if someone has a perceived conflict or misunderstanding with someone, it often is perceived. A lot of times it's real, but it can oftentimes be perceived. And, you know, I'm very guilty of that. Uh, you know, you tend to think that you're the center of the universe. And if someone's calling you or texting you, how could they be that you call them and you find out they're going through something much bigger than you imagine. So I, I always encourage people to go to that person and have a conversation, share how you're feeling. You know, um, when people come to me with hurt, I just love to listen. I just love to, to understand the why behind the what. Like, you know, they teach you in sales, like when you're selling all these features that you have to ask, well, what that means for you is. So on the other side of that is I want to know, well, give me the why. How does that make you feel? Like what, what happened? And give me some history around that just to be a good friend and to listen. But if it is involving someone else, I always love telling that person, it's an opportunity. Go have a conversation. And if it doesn't deepen your relationship, if you guys can talk yeah. through that, it doesn't deepen your relationship. You both would have learned something. You would have learned something about each other, whether you like that or not. But at the same time, you can put your head down at night and know that your conscience is clear and that there's no misperception that you know you took the time to be a peacemaker by inviting conversation. And I, on the other side of that too, if, if I encourage people that, and I've talked to a lot of my black friends who during this time, what's been incredibly valuable is when someone just simply calls you and says, hey, I don't pretend to know what you're feeling. And I have to say that because all of our experiences are different, right? We have commonality, but growing up in Canada, my experiences are what they are versus the US versus wherever else. So I often just want to understand. And when people get a call that just simply ask someone, how are you doing? What are you feeling? I don't know what to say. I just want to give you the opportunity to share your feelings and let me into the world you're walking through, those people at the end of that conversation want to go with that distance with whoever called them. Because it's like saying, I see you, I may not get it, but I hear you, and more importantly, I want to hear you because you're important to me. And I think that's it's kind of the combination of things from different sides of the conversation we're having. But and that feels like in many ways the culmination of everything that we talked about, doesn't it? I mean, it's really in some ways it's simple, but if only we did the simple things, right? Whatever they say, if only common sense was more common, you know, even as Christians, it's like, it's supposed to be Matthew 18. If I have an, an offense, I, I come to you privately and then I, you know, I bring the brothers and, you know, that's how, but we, we so easily don't do that. And what you're saying out of relationship and respect and I see you both proactively checking in, even when there's, even when it's like, I don't have that same shared experience. You know, if I'm in this moment looking on and I, and somebody comes to my heart, like just to send a text, like, Hey, how are you going right now? How you, you know what I mean? Like anything I can be praying for is so powerful. And, yeah. and where there is maybe concern or conflict or disagreement, um, you have to take that risk and to prayerfully, 
come together with a viewpoint of like, you know, having a hard conversation, but the end of it hopefully being reconciliation, repentance, ownership, change, you know. And I think sometimes it's like, there's certain people you don't want to ask them how they're doing because they'll really tell you. (laughs) And you're like, oh, no. But it's okay if someone, if you want to ask someone how they're doing and then say, I don't have words. Yeah. I just want to hear. And I think sometimes people may be afraid to ask someone how they're doing. Because they want to fix it. Because they may want to fix it. or, Or if something comes up that's really deep and complex and do they feel like they have the words for that? They're not called to have the words. Right. And listening here is just, that's it. It's beautiful. Well, that's good advice. It's a very different situation, but I do remember, I mean, we're talking about grief in many ways, what we're talking about right now, a collective communal grief. But when, when my mom passed away a few years ago, one of the most unhelpful things people did was try to fix it or tell me what to think or feel or or say, I understand, you know, because maybe they lost someone or a cat or something. I mean, honestly, I wish I was exaggerating. Just the things people would say. Um, and I get, I get it because they're uncomfortable with me being uncomfortable. It, you know, for some people, it's not okay to, for you to not be okay. Um, but I think, I think just to step in, like you said, you know, both of you in different ways and to say, hey, I don't, I don't pretend to understand. I can't even imagine, but I want you to know that I care, that I love you, that I see you. If there is a way I can pray or support or be a friend or, you know. That's all it is. It's so simple. And I think those authentic uh, moments of listening and understanding is really, really goes a long way. So we we try to do that as much as we can we could probably be better at it but yeah it's i think it's so important yeah well i could sure be better at it too so i'm <laughs> for you guys. thank you for taking the time amazing conversation today um I, i'm gonna i feel to pray over this really quickly before we before we close so father i just thank you for this incredible family the critchlers what a what a a pillar they are in this house and what an example they are to many people um, in their own family, in their respective industries, in our, um, in our family of local church communities, Liberty. And um, I just, I thank you for their voice in this conversation and um, just pray your greatest blessing over them. And I pray Lord for each of us um, listening that maybe today are challenged by the those last few things that uh, both Lincoln and April were hitting on, of being peacemakers, not just peacekeepers, of having the conversations, of proactively checking in on people, of you know stepping into relationship and daring to ask the questions. You know, um, Lord, I pray that everybody watching this will even just think right now, like an actual a call to action out of this conversation. Whenever they listen or watch this conversation. God, would every one of us consider, what could I do as a result of this prompt, this challenge, this um, call to action moment? I pray we will do something and that the world would be better for it in Jesus' name. (laughs) Amen. So good. Yeah. Love you guys. Thank you. Love you too. Love you, Paul.